1 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to look at chapters 5 and 6 this morning. In these chapters, we see a people who want life their own way, on their own terms, and for their own ends. And they get a powerful and painful awakening to the reality of an almighty God. I think we too need this awakening because we live in an age of personal autonomy. I determine my own morality. I determine my own identity. I determine my own destiny. I decide who I am, what I do, and who I love. And there is no one in heaven or on earth who can tell me any different. Alexander Pope captured our enlightened perspective. Know then thyself. Presume not God to scan. The proper study of mankind is man. We are a self-focused, self-absorbed, selfish people. Whatever life throws at us, we say, I'm the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my soul. God's not in the picture. Or if he is, he's subservient to us. He's under our control. And so we seek to use him in our own ways, on our own terms, and for our own ends. Our delusion is supported because I think we believe we've mastered the world around us. Nowhere is this more obvious than in our technological advancements. We've invented tools that have projected the illusion that nature has been subdued underneath our control. But too often, like those constructing the Tower of Babel, we've used our creative energies and the good gifts of God's creation for the purpose of our own self-glory and self-gratification. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man, he said that uh, the humble man sees his chief problem as how to conform his soul to reality. So then he thinks the solution is to do it through virtue and wisdom and discipline. But the prideful man, on the other hand, thinks that his chief problem is how do I conform reality to my own wishes? And so then he thinks that the solution is to accumulate power and knowledge and to do it through the tools of technology. Many advances in tech have simply advanced the sophistication of our pride. We think we know where we are because we have GPS. We think we know when we are because we have clocks. We think we know how we're doing because we have financial apps and health apps. We think we know who we are because we've carefully constructed our online profiles. We think we know what's going on because we have continuous access to new news. We have entertainment streamed instantly. We expect immediate connection, expression, and response. And all of this, all of this we can do through a magic box that fits in our pockets, where we can play God by escaping to an on-demand, personalized reality that's suited just to our own personal impulses and desires. Or so we think. But this is not a long-term sustainable strategy. God will wake us up to his glorious presence. He will not give his glory to another. God cannot be ignored or captured. He cannot be controlled or reduced or used. And while I think we could cite many examples of the atheists and the pagans out there engaging in these different forms of pride, I think we in here, we're not immune. In fact, I think those of us who have a knowledge and experience of the Lord, in some ways we're especially prone to use that for, uh, to use it in our own ways, to use it on our own terms for our own ends. 
I know at least for me, I, I too often want God to be in my own image. I too often want life on my own terms. I too often live in this fantasy that I'm the one who's in control. Well, this morning we're going to consider a time when the Philistines and the Israelites, outsiders and insiders, they attempt to control God. And God, in surprising and shocking ways, he turns everything upside down. He shows us that we are in his cosmic box, that we are under his sovereign control, and all glory goes to him alone. The context of these two chapters is this. It's a passage of transition from uh, one battle to the next. So there's a battle in Ebenezer in chapter 4, where Israel handily defeat, or where the Philistines handily defeat Israel, and another battle in chapter 7 at Mizpah, where Israel defeats the Philistines. It's also a transition from the ministry of Eli and his sons to the ministry of Samuel. And in a broader sense, we are in between this movable tabernacle and a stationary temple. We are going from the Mosaic Age and of tribal lands and of the judges to a united kingdom with a uh, centralized authority in Jerusalem. And like many transitions, this one is messy and painful. Let's begin reading in chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. These verses rank among some of the saddest and darkest in all of Scripture. Last week, we learned of Israel's defeat. We learned that Phinehas' son had been named Ichabod, meaning the glory of God has departed or been exiled. We learned that the ark had been removed from the tabernacle and been brought into battle. And now we learn that the ark has been captured. The ark was the symbol of God's presence and blessing. It was the sign of covenant relationship, the centerpiece of the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, the very meeting place of God and man on earth. It contained the holy relics of Israel's history, the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, a golden jar of manna, Aaron's budded staff. As one commentator put it, the ark was the center and the source of Israel's national identity. And now, their most precious possession, gone, stolen, taken captive, not destroyed or held for ransom, but placed in the grand temple of the Philistine pantheon of gods where Dagon, the chief god, reigns supreme. So now the ark, a trophy on display, the Philistines thought that they had this new god in a box, and they placed him beside Dagon. Likely they thought that Dagon could absorb whatever powers Yahweh had left and Yahweh would now be Dagon's faithful servant. New tech in his pocket. If the ark was a hardware upgrade for the temple, then maybe Yahweh would be a software upgrade for Dagon. In a sense, this was the very exile of God. Just think about it. At the end of Deuteronomy, God pronounces a series of blessings and curses for either obedience or disobedience. And what was the final punishment that was going to be given to Israel if they disobeyed? It was that they would be exiled, that they would be banished from the promised land. Just like Adam and Eve before them, they would be expelled from paradise, cut off from God's presence and blessing. But what happens here? In this instance, God graciously takes the place of his people. It's God, or the symbol of God on earth, the ark, who is the substitute, 
who's captured for pagan purposes, who's expelled from the land of promise, who is exiled behind enemy lines. Well, what happens next to this weak God who seems silent, still, and defeated? Look at verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So notice here on both days that the people rose up and behold, Dagon had fallen down. On the first day, Dagon fell prostrate before the ark in this position of worship. And notice Dagon, this chief god, unable to even call out during the night, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. When they do finally notice, he needs human caretakers to, verse 6, what does it say? To put him back in his place. The next day, Dagon bows in worship again. This time, his head, the symbol of his authority, cut off. His hands, the symbol of his power, severed from his body. And like the serpent in the garden, without appendages, he is doomed to eat dust. The message was clear. If you will not worship God, he will destroy you and it will not be pretty. This fatal blow left a gruesome crime scene with Dagon lying, decapitated and dismembered on the floor. He had taken a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men, they stand there gaping at this divine Humpty Dumpty broken in pieces on the floor. As another arrogant deity in another universe was once described, this Dagon had been exposed as a pathetic and puny god. And do you see the parallel here with the inept priest back in chapter 4? Remember Eli, heavy and old? He receives the news that the ark's been captured, and what happens? He falls over dead with a wound to the head. If the capture of the ark was God's exile in enemy territory, then the demise of Dagon was in some sense God's exodus from captivity. Just as God had demonstrated his power and glory and defeat of, of Egypt's gods, So again, God demonstrates his authority as the God of gods, the sovereign Lord over all the earth. And then God, he silently but unmistakably, he goes on this victory parade from Philistine city to Philistine city, as we'll see. But instead of candy met with cheers, the Lord is distributing tumors met with shrieks. And the ark gets passed like a piping hot potato from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron. This holy ark has become a holy headache for the Philistines. So as we read this next section, notice two things. First, the repeated mention of the Lord's, or Yahweh's hands, in contrast to the cut-off hands of Dagon. And then second, notice that the Lord's hands were heavy. Remember, Chad told us last week, that same word for heavy is glory or glorious. So let's start reading, chapter 5, verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy, or glorious against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified them and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the hordes of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, 
let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around the Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy or glorious there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This cry going up to heaven is the same phrase used of the Egyptians in response to the plagues uh, in the Exodus. And like the plagues in Egypt, what a scene this was. Look at how the text describes it. Ashdod was terrified. In Gath, there was very great panic. And in Ekron, there was deathly panic throughout the whole city. Confusion multiplied as Ekron blamed Gath. And just like they had put Dagon back in his place, look in verse 11, they decide they will try to put Yahweh, the God of Israel, back in his own place. What they thought was a dormant and domesticated deity was now showing his greatness and glory through disease and destruction. God brought them to their knees. He used their afflicted, diseased bodies in order to expose their arrogant, diseased souls. And do you notice who's missing from this chapter? Where's the army of Israel? Where's Samson, the Israel's champion judge? He's alive at this time. Where is Samuel, the godly prophet and priest? You know, the ark here has been taken. And neither Samson nor Samuel, they don't send the message to the Philistines promising that they're going to use their particular set of skills to get it back. Here's the contrast. Whereas Dagon needed human help just to get it back, God is doing all of this, defeating the Philistines, throwing whole cities into chaos, making them cry for mercy all on his own, in his own way, on his own terms, for his own ends. And Israel is totally unaware. Can you imagine how dejected and defeated Israel must have been during these months? What would we think if uh, tomorrow China stole the original copy of our Declaration of Independence or Constitution? Or how would Britons feel if Russia stole their crown jewels or even kidnapped the queen? But despite their mood in Israel, God was moving. How often are we clueless to the activity of God? How often do we fail to detect that God is doing things all around us. May this serve as a reminder to all of us to keep full confidence in the work of God. Even when, and could we say, especially when things seem worse, God does his best work. That's why God's exaltation is so surprising because he doesn't show his power through brute force. He doesn't do it through a brilliant display of nuclear explosion, but instead God chooses a slow and subtle approach that not only demonstrates his glory, but it also systematically exposes the foolish arrogance of humans. So let's look at the response. First, the response to the Philistines. Their political and religious leaders get together, come up with a plan, design a test, and then execute their plan. So the plan first, it's in verses one through five of chapter six. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. 
They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt with them, dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? So we find out now, we didn't know this before, that there were seven months of plague, but there had also been an infestation of mice who were ravaging the land. And in response, these priests recommend fashioning five golden tumors, five golden mice. And the purpose that the priests give, this is fascinating. Look at verse five. The Philist, is that the Philistine lords in fashioning these things is that they give glory to the God of Israel. How God has turned everything upside down. Just months before, they had totally defeated the army of Israel. They had captured the ark of Israel's God. And now without any military engagement, they're willing to give glory to God to return Israel's most precious possession and to do so with an appeasement offering of gold? How ironic is it that it's these pagan priests of the Philistines, they seem to know more about Moses' sacrificial system than Israel did, right? More than the uh, Eli's sons, remember, ministering poorly in the temple or the tabernacle. It's the Philistines who are the ones who come up with this idea to give a guilt offering for trespassing against a holy ground. And how sad that these pagan priests, they seem to know more about Israel's history than Israel. It's the Philistines who invoke the Exodus as a historical instruction to discourage further rebellion. Nevertheless, as you can imagine, some doubted, so not totally ready to concede defeat. They make up this test. So let's start reading. Here's the test in verse 7. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know it's not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and they took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart in the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. How hilarious and humiliating was this scene. The great lords of the Philistines, they are gingerly, cautiously following cows down the highway. These cows, contrary to their nature, as they naturally would have wanted to return home to their nursing calves, instead, they're the model of obedience in this passage. They're the true servants of the Lord who neither turn to the right or to the left. And so now this highfalutin court of Philistine royals, unwilling to listen to the word of the Lord, is now being led by the lowing of domesticated moors. In shame, these lords, they dutifully fall in line behind golden rodents 
and polished lumps of plague. And acknowledged or not, they're actually being led by the silent and sovereign song of the Pied Piper of Providence. Well, let's leave the Philistines for now. I'm sure they're likely still arguing as they go back home whether or not the plan worked and if they got everything figured out. They need to go back home and see if the mice are still there and the plague's gone. But now let's turn to the response of Israel. So let's look at verse 13 of chapter 6. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Jesus of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled, unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. For Israel, this was their return of the king moment, but all was not well in paradise. The people rejoiced, that was good, but the Levites who showed up, they didn't follow Moses' instructions from the Lord. Right? They sacrificed the cows. It was supposed to be bulls. They handled the ark and even looked inside it. It was supposed to be covered, never touched directly or even seen. As one commentator remarked, if you act like a Philistine, you can expect to be punished like a Philistine. From this, we learn that God is not only concerned with who we worship, but also how we worship. And I think that's because they're connected. Think about it like this. Whenever God gives us instructions for how to worship him, and it doesn't make sense to us, it doesn't fit with our own intuitions, whenever we do it anyways, we are showing that we truly trust him, that he's worthy of us being obedient to him, even when it doesn't make sense to us. And so the Lord is saying, trust me enough to follow my instructions, even if you don't understand it. Israel still had to learn humility. They had to be brought low so that they would, the end of 7-2, lament after the Lord. Well, Peter Lightheart, he provided a helpful summary of how this passage parallels the Exodus. He said that the ark of the Lord went into enemy territory, it brought plagues on the enemies of Israel, and humbled the gods of the Gentiles, and then it returned to the land full of treasure. As in the Exodus from Egypt, Israel now moved from oppression and misery to blessedness, from bondage to freedom, from the desert back to the garden. 
But even then, if you remember back after the Exodus, they faced setback after setback. They had their own stories of gold and cows and plagues. So when will this cycle end? Well, we're still waiting for something more, aren't we? And I think it's hinted at in this passage. Notice how God's victory prayed. It passed through the cities of the Philistines, and then God re-enters the promised land. And God's new conquest of the land, it's complete when it stops in the field of a guy named Joshua, right? So this guy, Joshua, named after the great conquering general of Israel, who brought Israel into the promised land. But as I'm sure many of you know, Joshua is the Hebrew name for, yeah, for Jesus. Or more accurately, Joshua and Jesus are both English versions of the same name, one that comes through the Hebrew and the other through the Greek. Now, I think we could take the Philistine approach and surmise that this is all just a coincidence. But let me encourage you this morning to see even small details like this one as ones where God is working. They point us forward to something more. Several years after this, Samson, the great warrior judge of Israel, remember he was captured, chained, and put on display in the temple of Dagon with the Philistines pridefully celebrating again. And then Samson, in his humiliation, he bows his head, he stretches out his arms, and he pulls down Dagon's temple, defeating more in his death than he had killed in his life. Several decades after that, David, the anointed shepherd king of Israel, he challenged the, God, the giant Goliath, whose family was likely impacted by the plague in their hometown of Gath. Upon seeing the young boy, Goliath cursed David in the name of his gods, likely invoking the name of Dagon, totally oblivious to the irony of the next few moments. David, in his humiliation, brought down the giant blasphemer who fell down to the ground and David cut off his head. Several centuries after this, God was captured again. He was seized, paraded in front of foreigners and their gods, ridiculed, mocked, and humiliated. At the moment of his greatest weakness, naked, nailed, and bleeding, as his enemies spit and cast lots for his clothes, the great reversal takes place. Israel's true conqueror like Joshua Israel's true champion, like Samson. Israel's true shepherd king, like David. Jesus, what does he do? He bows his head, he stretches out his arms, and he saves more in his death than he had saved in his life. The Son of God gained victory by being captured, and the head of the dragon was crushed. Do you see here the beauty and the glory of Jesus, the Son of God who tabernacled among us? the suffering servant who was bruised and beaten, an offering of guilt, not of gold, but of blood, gushing from his broken and ravaged body. He absorbed the plague of sin, and he granted sinners access to this holy God. He did not stay dead in enemy territory, but he rose from the grave, conquering the rulers and powers of this world so that we may taste and see that the Lord is good, so that we may know and touch this merciful Savior. And this king, he's going to return to rule and reign in his rightful place with his people on his land. And he's going to do it his own way, on his own terms, for his own ends. I want to conclude by going back and looking at the questions in this passage. I think one of the most important things we could do is answer these questions correctly. 
So go back. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. Look at the question there. They sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And then again, the same question is asked in chapter 6, verse 2. What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Well, in light of what we've studied here this morning, you too must answer, what will you do with the Lord? What did Israel do? Israel forgot the Lord, ignored his instructions, tried to use the ark as a lucky charm in battle. What did the Philistines do? They tried to control the Lord and put him in service to Dagon. For both the Gentiles and the Israelites, things had to get awfully bad so that they would finally remember the work of the Lord and turn and give him glory. They were forced by their circumstances to be awakened out of their delusions of arrogance. But they waited until it was painfully obvious that they were no longer in control. What's it going to take for us to wake up to God's glorious reality among us? In this instance, God demonstrated his control over microorganisms and mammals, over bacteria and bovine. God directs the natural world. God directs the affairs of men. Is God still doing that today? We have all this evidence that God is at work in history, in the Exodus, in fulfilling prophecy, in raising Jesus from the dead. We know that God has worked in this community and in this church. Is it all just a coincidence? No, surely not. All of this is unmistakably God. So what should we do? Look at chapter 6, verse 4, another question. 6, 4, they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? Oh, what a question from these Philistines. Here we have the recognition of sin, the acknowledgement of offense against the holy God. Here we see the need of an offering, a sacrifice to atone for their guilt. So how do you answer that question? What do you have to offer the Lord? Do you have enough gold? Do you have enough bulls or goats? What can you give him? The Lord gives us our answer in Hebrews 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ, who had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Well, if this is the case, if Christ is our offering, then consider the question in chapter 6, verse 6. Look at it. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh harden their hearts? It's the Philistines who they recall Israel's history, find it instructive. How much more should we go back and look at God's great work among us and be convicted of our sin and be humbled by what God is doing? If you continue to turn away from God, continue to deny his work in the world, and think that all of this is just by coincidence, your heart will become harder than a rock. And of course, the implication is clear. Don't harden your hearts. Turn from sin. Turn to God. And here the final question comes from those remaining after the Lord struck a great blow for looking inside the ark. Chapter 6, verse 20. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? Oh, how wonderful it is that we have a God who despite our misguided wishes does not go up away from us, but who has come down to us and who has become one of us. 
No mere man can stand before the Lord, this holy God, and live. And yet there was a man who stood condemned before guilty men and died. And died. And the choice before us is this. We can cling to our pride and we can fall down into our destruction. Or, or we can in humility die with him. And if we die with him, we can rise with him. And if we rise with him, we can stand eternally before this holy God. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. God will not be domesticated. So let's stop trying. God will be glorified. So let's start worshiping him. Let's all take a moment to respond to his word this morning. Look to Christ. Come to Christ. If need be, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Turn away from sin, trust in Christ, that you may stand eternally before this holy God. He is welcoming you into his arms. Consider now how God would have you respond. Make it known to him in prayer. We pray now, Lord, in the words of Psalm 100, acknowledging that you are God. You made us, and we are yours, your people, the sheep of your pasture. Amen.